Hello and welcome to a special episode of A Health Podacy. It's part of a new speaker series from Health Affairs uh, where we focus on in-depth conversations with influential health policy experts in Washington, D.C. and beyond. Now, this is a live interview, and with that comes all the trappings of a live recording. So some of the audio might sound a little different to regular A Health Podacy listeners. If you want to know who's up next on our speaker series, Subscribe to our Health Affairs Today or Health Affairs Sunday update newsletters. And with that, let's start the show. Hello, I'm Alan Weil, Editor-in-Chief of Health Affairs. We're delighted you're joining us for this, our third Policy Spotlight event, with the new administrator of the Centers for Medicare and Medicaid Services, Chiquita Brooks-Lashur. Policy Spotlight is a new series of virtual events from Health Affairs featuring in-depth conversations with influential health policy experts. The inspiration for the series came from our March 2020 theme issue, released when the Affordable Care Act turned 10. Just as the issue came out, we entered the COVID lockdown and had to cancel our release event. When it came time to reschedule, we decided that rather than look backward, we'd look forward and engage leaders in discussions about their vision for the future. Now, Ms. brooks Lashur is an ideal person to do this. She authored a piece in that March 2020 issue on the ACA, and now, of course, is in the incredibly influential position of CMS Administrator. If you missed them, our guests for the first two policy spotlights were Liz Fowler, Director of the Center for Medicare and Medicaid Innovation, CMMI, and Mickey Tripathi, the National Coordinator for Health Information Technology. You can find recordings of these events on our website. Now, if you know health affairs, you know we're all about substance. So my goal for today is to dig beyond the headlines and get into some of the details regarding the policies relevant to CMS. And I want to acknowledge the financial support of the Robert Wood Johnson Foundation and the Commonwealth Fund. They supported the ACA Turns 10 issue and this series. But it's now my pleasure to introduce to you Chiquita brooks Lashure. Ms. brooks Lashure is the administrator for CMS. She oversees an $888 billion budget, leads several programs integral to the U.S. healthcare system, including, of course, Medicare, Medicaid, the Children's Health Insurance Program, the ACA exchanges, and the like. More than 145 million Americans rely on programs under her purview. Ms. brooks Lashure has decades of experience in the federal government on Capitol Hill and in the private sector. I'm not going to review all of them. She began her career as a program examiner and lead Medicaid analyst for OMB, coordinating Medicaid policy development. She was director, deputy director for policy at what we knew as SOSIO, the Center for Consumer Information and Insurance Oversight, CMS, was earlier the director of coverage policy at HHS, where she led the agency's implementation of coverage and insurance reform provisions. Earlier in her career, she assisted House leaders in passing several healthcare laws, including the Medicare Improvements for Patients and Providers Act of 2008 and the ACA, as part of the Democratic staff for the U.S. House of Representative Ways and Needs Committee. She holds a BA from Princeton University, received her master's in public policy from Georgetown University. And since our paths have crossed quite a few times over the years, I hope you'll allow me to call you Chiquita. Uh, and, uh, and let's just uh, get into the great content that I know we're going to discuss. So I'm gonna start with sort of a basic question for you. I go to the CMS website and I don't see a mission statement. Now, to be fair, CMS is part of HHS and HHS has a mission statement. This is not a criticism, but I wanna just ask, is there a mission statement that I didn't find or if you were to write that mission statement today, what would you put in it? 
great question. And we are uh, very much in the process of putting together our strategic plan and our vision, which we will be unveiling over the next couple of weeks. And uh, really, uh, health affairs is a big part of that. As uh, I was a co-author with um, some of my colleagues outlining our vision for the Innovation Center. And I hope that over the next couple of weeks and months, we can continue to uh, outline what our vision is for so many parts of the program, uh, the programs that we serve. I should start by saying thank you for inviting me today. Health Bears, of course, is such an important part of the health policy um, policy making process. And it really is a pleasure to be here with you. And being the CMS administrator is the privilege of a lifetime. Um, I've only been in a couple of months, but I feel like I've been forever in forever. It feels like home. The CMS team is full of the most dedicated public servants in the country and just what a wonderful team of people who've worked so hard through the COVID pandemic and um, always keep the trains running um, through so many changes. And so it's really a privilege to be part of this team again. Um, so in terms of our vision, uh, one of the things that I very much am always struck with um, when I leave as you know, I've bounced in and out of the federal government. And every time I leave, I always am continually reminded how little people understand what the federal government does and how it operates feels like a black box. And one of the things that I want to bring to CMS is a vision of being person-centered so that we are responsible for, I like to say, the three M's, Medicare, Medicaid, and Marketplace. We have a C in there too, Chip, um, which is my you know, heart where I started um, a lot of my work in my early in my career when uh, Chip was implemented. And the point of these programs is to serve the people that are covered by them. And we can so often in the policy process lose sight of that. And so um, one of the things that I'm most focused on is making sure that all of our policies and operations are really focused on making sure that we ha have the people in mind um, when we are operating, as well as all of the stakeholders that are key to actually delivering the care that we are focused on. And the first place that we start with making sure that people are at the center is addressing health equity. And we are in this incredible moment. I think that we um, have, many people have worked for years and talked about health disparities and health inequities. But last year, at the start of the pandemic, I think the world got a lesson on the holes in our healthcare system and what, um, what that means when we are not providing um, equal care across the country. We can't afford to do it. Um, we cannot be in this position again. And so the first question that we are asking ourselves uh, at the team is, does our policy, does our operation advance health equity? And in changing that lens and making sure that's out of focus, it is uh, very much changing how, um, how, we, how we think and how we approach our, our program. 
Well, you've already touched on a few topics I want to go deeper into. So it's a great start. I want to talk about equity. I want to talk about person-centered care. You did mention a blog post, and I just want to reinforce to our audience that uh, the administrator with uh, the senior management team just published a post on our website uh, just shortly before this event began, and I am going to make reference to it. Before we get into those topics you mentioned, I, I want to ask about a sentence in the post uh, where you say, um, we concluded that we need a shared vision of the health system that we're collectively striving toward. And I guess I just, before we even go into the how, you know, we're a big diverse country with a lot of divisions and the health system varies tremendously depending on where you live. Is it realistic? Do we have a shared vision? Uh, how would you feel confident that, that people share in it if you come up with it? It's such an important question. I think that we are diverse. Um, we are a diverse country. Uh, I have had the privilege over the last um, couple of months to talk to members um, across the country and hear uh, so much about their own perspectives and continuing to hear from um, so many different communities and providers about challenges earlier today was in a conversation about a small rural area with literally one hospital in the county and just concerns about um, the care that they can provide and keeping their doors open and what they what they mean as both an employer and a um, uh, and a healthcare provider. I would say that part of what we need to do is continue to work on um, on shared goals. And while our goals are the execution of those things may look different. Um, and I think there are many more commonalities than we appreciate. For example, um, I hear so much from rural communities and I see those issues as the same issues as, the as what we're facing in urban areas with the underserved. Will the solution be the same? Maybe, maybe not. But are the issues similar? Yes, they're about are people getting the care that they need? Are we uh, creating policies that um, help providers plan the rest of the system work? Uh, so, you know, I don't imply that it's easy. And certainly, um, even as we internally do the work of getting all on the same page, um, it's not it's not simple. We have a complex system, but it is the work that needs to be done. And I'm excited to tackle it. That's great. Uh, let's start with the equity focus, which, as you noted, has been a focus of the Biden administration from day one. Um, why don't you start? You, you said it comes in conversation. Maybe give us an example of what the implications of that conversation, of having it as part of the conversation, are um, in the months that you've been there. Certainly. So I think that one of the core issues is access to coverage. It's not the only issue, but it certainly is one of the core issues. And I would say um, what we've learned during the special enrollment period and our push to get people enrolled in marketplace, uh, Medicaid, and CHIP um, has really been focused on not just getting um, people enrolled, but are we reaching the harder to reach communities? So really focusing on um, making sure our outreach is um, is reaching some of those less uh, 
some of the areas of less focus, right? So are we talking to markets that we don't usually engage? Are we engaging in new types of community partnerships? Of um, Are we doing more and looking at um, our language and trying to make sure that we are uh, being responsive? So that's been one, um, one core piece. And I've been so grateful to be part of an administration that has made this uh, this equity so um, so front and center uh, in terms of not just our rhetoric, but also what um, what the president has put as priorities. So looking at the American Rescue Plan, and one area of focus for me personally has been maternal health and working with Congress to pass the postpartum coverage for women. I think is one of the most impactful things that um, Congress can do to address maternal health. It's um, a real focus for us administratively. Uh, Dan Size uh, and uh, our team at um, working on Medicaid is really looking at this issue to work with states. And one of the things we're excited to do is really encourage uh, our um, our states to take that option up. That's just one example. I could go on and on, but just a, a, a really specific area of saying, this is something, we have a crisis in our country in terms of more maternal mortality and its disparate effects um, and, and, and making that such a priority, making coverage more affordable. Um, I was recently in Oklahoma to celebrate the Medicaid expansion and, uh, and just hearing just the people who, uh, just, the, just the desire and the interest, right? 50,000 people before it opened enrolled. And I was at the um, Cherokee Nation to, uh, to talk to them about how much work they had done to get people enrolled, really talking to the communities that um, haven't often been, been just uh, part of the conversation. Um, well, you know, we had Liz Fowler on this uh, before, and the blog you uh, wrote with her and others, um, sorry, I'm going to sound like an editor because I'm going to keep referring to it, but it's such a great document. Um, but I, I have a question on the equity. Um, I totally get that equity needs to be a, a central thought to the initiatives coming out of CMMI, that, that that's part of what it means for models to succeed. But you had this great sentence in there about the history of CMMI and said that voluntary models draw those with resources and capital. And, and I thought, you know, that's right. Mm -hmm. But the shortage of resources and capital that a lot of institutions have comes from decades of longstanding policies around payment, base payment rates in Medicaid, yeah. Uh, uncompensated care burden, allocation of GME, all sorts of things that are, aren't sort of about initiatives. They're not mm -hmm. about something at the margin. They're at the core. Yeah. I guess my question is, if we're serious about equity, how do we take the equity conversation, not just into the sort of the CMMI mm -hmm. value-based payment space, but in the, the whole base, which is where a lot of those uh, inequities uh, come from? It is. It, it, this is so, I'm so glad you asked this question because this is, this is so true, right? It's so many of these community-based organizations, providers, the essential providers, whatever you want to call them of the safety net have been underfunded 
for decades. And a lot of times they are the institutions that people know and love, um, but they are not able to provide the kind of care. They're not supported at the same level. They have a different patient mix, patients mix in terms of um, they're not able to, you know, have a lot of commercial pay to cover costs. Um, I, this is going to be multiple, multiple, right? Like thinking about how do we look at our Medicaid tools? So um, as we think about the Medicaid program and really look at the payment policies, making sure that we're looking um, at access, making sure we're looking at um, adequate payment. And, you know, one of the things that states have been able to do, some states have been incredibly innovative about um, payments to these types of organizations. So we look at that piece and making sure that, um, you know, of course, the states uh, administer these programs and it's our role to oversee, but also to give a vision, right, of where we're headed. And so as states come in um, for waivers and as they come in for changes, we're going to be asking them questions. And I know that from my work with the states, that states are interested in tackling these things too. Um, so it's not a one size fits all, but knowing that so these are going to be the questions. And certainly in the Medicare payment program, um, we, as we are going through the rulemaking process, we are looking and asking ourselves different questions. Which types of providers? What is happening um, to our payment policy? And, um, you know, it won't be an overnight issue. Making it the first question, looking at our digging a little bit deeper. Does our big policy objective that we think makes sense, does it actually trickle down to uh, achieving the objectives and really pushing ourselves um, on that. And a lot of that starts by asking the questions and the data, which we have not sufficiently done. Okay, so in Washington, I should start with a Medicare question, but you know, my first love is Medicaid. I used to run the Medicaid agency in Colorado decades okay. ago. So I, I'm gonna start there since you brought it up and then we'll turn of course to Medicare. Um, you wrote in the March issue that we published on the 10th anniversary about access and equity and the need to get the states that had not chosen the Medicaid expansion in the mix. One of the ideas at the time that you referenced is providing full 100% FMAP for a few years. We, we've done that. It hasn't mm -hmm. changed everything. Um, uh, leaves a lot of people out. What's next? Well, I think that um, we will. CMS, the administration continue to encourage states to expand. There is a lot of money on the table, but as you said, um, there we you know are going to have to see if the states will do that. But Congress, um, and this is not my bailiwick uh, anymore, um, but Congress is of course discussing covering the gap um, for the states that have not expanded by putting. Um, by addressing it as part of um, the the budget resolution. And I think it's critical. It is, as I said in um, the health affairs paper with Liz, the unfinished work of the ACA in my mind, it is the most important thing to address health equity. The fact that the poorest among us have nothing in some states is problematic. Um, or if we want to truly address um, health inequities, then uh, so we, of course, stand ready to 
administer whatever the Congress passes our, and sends our way. You earlier made reference to waivers, and of course, you fairly quickly unraveled some of the work requirement provisions from the Trump administration. It got involved in your confirmation. Uh, I'm, I know the, the substance of that. It's clearly a position of the administration. I'm happy to have you expand on the substance, but I'm also interested in the process Given the ideological swings sometimes between administrations, how do we think of waivers as research and demonstration where we learn things and not just something where a state doesn't know if it can plan a long-term vision for its Medicaid program because it doesn't know if the next administration is going to support the vision that they have? Yeah, so, so important. And um, again, from my work previously, I so appreciate how much effort it is on the state level to put together ideas. And I do think that states are closest to their communities. And it is very important that CMS really understand and treat the states as partners. Uh, that's very important to me. One of the things that I send it, said in my confirmation process and what I have tried to do as CMS administrator is really engage the states. Uh, in conversation and um, and not surprise them, for them to know um, what our vision is and where we are headed. And that's something that we are, are actively working on, making sure that we are engaging with states, we are listening to them, and certainly understanding the pressures that they are under, particularly in a COVID pandemic. That said, we also have another responsibility, and that is to uphold the objectives of the Medicaid statute and make sure that it is uh, meeting the standards uh, for the people that it serves. And as part of that, um, different administrations will have different visions of that from time to time. We are trying to be very careful in where we are making changes. Uh, they have been and will be in places where um, where we are making sure to follow the um, the correct process. So public comment um, is a, a very important part of the of the 1115 process. It is critical that we make sure that people who actually are going to be affected or deliver care have an opportunity to uh, express their views. It doesn't mean they'll always be taken into account, but that's something that's really important to us. And so some of the actions have really been around making sure that the process is um, correct. And then in terms of, um, of uh, stability, we have to continue to evaluate at all times whether our policies are working. That is just not specific to Medicaid. It's specific to all of our programs. And that's what Congress is for. Sometimes Congress passes things and says, that didn't quite work out the way we thought. We have to change laws. That's unfortunately or fortunately the nature of our process. and. Um, uh, hopefully, we do it in a thoughtful way. You mentioned public comment, and early on, your second principle, in addition to equity, was uh, patient centeredness. I'd note that those are two elements of what the then Institute of Medicine, now National Academy of Medicine, says is quality care. Uh, patient centeredness is probably the weakest link in the quality efforts over the decades since uh, that report was issued. It's great to hear you reference it. Um, I want to turn to Medicare, although I, of course, would be happy to talk about Medicaid all day. Mm -hmm. um, 
What I've heard from people who've sat in your seat is, you know, the providers are there every single day with issues, concerns, legitimate. That's not the question, but yeah. it's constant. Um, how I get the notion of public comment in something like a Medicaid waiver, mm -hmm. but when it comes to really the fundamentals of thinking about running the Medicare agency, what does it in practice mean to, to make it patient? patient-centered? It is, it is a big, it's a big effort to try to, um, uh, as, as you said, it's, a, it's, there is so much that goes into the Medicare payments. I mean, we are, as you know, cranking out rules <laughs> at a very constant clip. And, um, and I would say it's a twofold process. Um, and not to make it simple because it's not, but one of the ways is by um, one of the things that I have started doing, but really will will have you know will be a, a longer process is making sure that we're engaging stakeholders. Uh, we are starting we've been starting listening sessions with me this month, which I always find that um, hearing from um, people on the ground is so helpful for understanding how policies are moving. And so CMS has uh, been pre-me, certainly, um, but certainly what we are focused on is making sure we are engaging um, to hear what uh, what providers have to say about our, um, our, our policies. The second thing that we, and I would say along with um, my principal deputy, John Blum, um, we, John, uh, John and I are very focused on being both, uh, not just reactive, right? So the CMS, running CMS, there is a lot. Um, and I have been very focused on putting together a fantastic team of people who um, can do the, the, all of the reactive work that comes, but we're also taking that time to be more proactive. And, and really think about what's our strategy moving forward. And quality and thinking about the Medicare program is a big part of that. Like how do we shift from, um, just as we talked about in the blog, doing the, what have we learned over the last 10 years in the Innovation Center? Well, we're doing the same thing on, um, on the Medicare program um, with Nina um, and uh, you know so many, strong leaders coming in who working together are looking across to say, let's take a step back. What was the purpose of this? We're looking at MIPS. We're looking at um, uh, all of our, our ACOs, not just in, um, in um, not just what's happening in the innovation center, but really also thinking about what is, what are in the other centers and are, and looking to see, are they aligned? It won't be a tomorrow, you know, an instantaneous process, but we're um, undergoing that process now. Well, uh, I've been trying to keep track of the questions coming in. And if you see me look away for a moment, that's usually what it is. Uh, I'd say at least half of them have to do with the value agenda in various forms. And it's something that you've referenced again. Liz Fowler mentioned it, of course, in our conversation. It seems that uh, the move to value-based payment is a bipartisan effort. It's uh, hasn't the commitment to value hasn't wavered during different administrations. But 
I assume in addition to the focus on equity that you've described that there are other ways you would like to guide that that may differ or may be continuous with uh, previous approaches. And we've learned a lot, as you say in the blog. So um, what do you see as the future of value-based payment? I think that we all know that we have to move and continue to move uh, in new directions in healthcare. The care is more integrated and we've seen in pockets, um, you know, some some wonderful directions that we're going. Um, I, I think what some of the things we talked about though are really in the, of the lessons learned are having too many models in too many places that aren't coordinated with each other. And, and so we are really trying to think about um, focusing more of our attention uh, and, and, and really making sure we're investing in things that are working. And by working, I would say it's really about, is it working for the people? Is it working? Are we attracting providers and a diverse group of providers? And, some of this, again, starts with the questions of, um, are these providers, are we making sure that the underserved are in these groups? Are we, um, are we really benefiting everyone? Are we, um, or are we cherry picking? So these are some of the things that we are really focused on, that there is strong support for more integrated care, for figuring out how to make sure that people are getting more primary care for behavioral health a lot of focus on integration. Um, and I think we all know just how much the cost of care is skyrocketing in particular areas. For example, that in behavioral health um, is making up almost half or more than half of the cost in some of the programs, right? So, so really focusing on um, an entity uh, who, who is looking at the whole person and not just procedures, all of that is um, is very much at the heart of what we're interested in doing, but um, being very conscious of doing that in a way that actually leads to better healthcare outcomes. And I think that's, um, I don't know what, um, want to say this shift, but I think one of the things that we're really focused, or I'm personally really focused on is making sure we're actually improving health equity and we're actually improving the care that people are receiving and then moving that, and some of this may be Congress, moving the things that we determine are working to be a core part of the program, not just available to um, a small subset. And it, again, it may not be that it's within CMS's authority to do all of that, but hopefully, I mean, the point of doing models um, or demonstrations, same thing at the state level, is so that if things work, we can integrate it into the core part of the program. And that's the other thing is making sure that traditional fee-for-service isn't left behind because as you know, um, and in Medicare Advantage, we've seen some incredible gains, um, some things that we need to make sure that um, people who choose to stay in fee-for-service also benefit from. Part of what, uh... The whole person care is an integration is not just uh, clinical and medical integration it's integration of meeting what are often referred to as the social determinants of health social factors that affect people's health 
Um, HHS, of course, has a very broad purview, but CMS is focused on healthcare. How do you see an agenda around addressing these social factors within CMS? How do you see it as relating to other elements of HHS so that we're not just sort of saying to health systems, healthcare providers, you figure out how to meet these social needs, but instead we're saying we have resources across these various programs designed to meet them. Let's work together to meet uh, a person or family where they are. Um, one of the great things about uh, the, uh, the, our incoming in this administration is just how how interested we all are in working together. Um, and we have already been actively engaged, the department um, and CMS, about trying to think about how to integrate care across our programs. So social determinants of health is a HHS-wide cross-cutting issue that we're focused on, integrating behavioral health, looking at maternal health. These are areas of shared focus. Um, and I think that I like to say um, the financing world, CMS, um, sometimes we don't always, we don't speak the same language as the public health world, right? Like I, um, again, hearkening to my pre-job, um, I had the joy of meeting with several states in a closed-door session who were from different parts of the healthcare system, right? Like public health versus, we don't talk the same language and we don't think about things the same way. And one of the core things of that is integrating and really trying to make sure our, um, our programs are aligned. And just to give you a very specific example on maternal health, their maternal health grants, right, that are given um, through, through HHS to states. And states are doing maternal health programs in their Medicaid programs. Are those things integrated? Um, they should be. And part of what needs to be is, uh, and part of that is HHS being integrated. So that's a long way of saying that I see um, our role as, um, as really making sure we're being good partners with our colleagues and thinking about places of integration and then looking at our own programs and, and seeing, can we think about them more broadly than um, maybe we did in the past now that we um, you know, really are seeing how critical those things are to, uh, to people's healthcare and in a lot of our programs we do have flexibility to um to at least provide some of these these ancillary pieces okay so we all want to be in the room where it happens and you actually are so i want to go just a little further give us a picture of what it's like you say you all like working together just paint paint me a picture of picture. the room <laughs> Uh, yes, yeah, so it is, um, well, it's, I, I like people, I like engaging with people and we have, um, you know, as we all suffer through, uh, the COVID pandemic, it's a different kind of dynamic. I have to say the one nice thing about, uh, this difficult time for all of us is our ability to Zoom and CMS has always been a, um, organization that used um, uh, technology because we have multiple offices. There are 
um, at this time four different CMS offices. So it was not unusual for, um, you know, some people to be in Baltimore and some people to be in Bethesda and some of us to be in DC and on the VTC. Well, now it's quite more, um, uh, it's so much easier to connect. And so uh, much of my day is on Zoom with the team uh, and really, you know, hearing from all over the country what's going on. Um, but yeah, sometimes we're in the office and masked up and on the big screen, just um, just making sure we are keeping the um, keeping the trains running, but keeping our eye on the long ball, which is uh, um, there's quite a lot quite a lot of quite a lot to do but and then part of it is really trying to engage with um everyone all the stakeholders which there are also many so that's as i said something we're uh we've really been focused on this month well i appreciate you giving us that perspective so i wouldn't be doing my job if i didn't ask some of the hot button questions oh, yeah. that again you know <laughs> you, you you can't have a conversation about uh where we are without talking about prescription drugs and prescription drug pricing. And yes, of course, there's a congressional discussion to be had here, but there's also an executive branch uh, uh, role here. And so I won't ask you to opine about your old colleagues in Congress, but uh, what might we see around prescription drug pricing? Well, this is not an opinion, but it is a hope. I mean, I do certainly hope that Congress passes legislation. It's certainly been the priority of um, the president to make sure that uh, Congress passes um, uh, affordable prescription drug um, legislation. I think I get asked about it all the time, and it's really affecting people's lives uh, in a real way. Uh, and so, and it will, I think the congressional process really lends itself to, um, to, a, to a better, uh, an ideal outcome. Um, and so, uh, even though I am in the executive branch, I do hope that Congress tells me what to do in this, in this instance. <laughs> Um, but in terms of our own actions, we continue to uh, uh, look at our authority and um, are really focused on making sure that we are um, uh, coming up with um, the best the best things that we can do within uh, our within our authority and looking at um, how we cover drugs and certainly the requirements around Part D and making sure that the Part D program is operating uh, in a way that makes sense for, for people. Well, I wouldn't be doing my job if I let you get away entirely with that answer. Um, I'm not asking you to break news here or be out in front of your president or your secretary, uh, but can you say a little more about what's on the table? Um, just, you know, as you, as you know, the uh, President put out an executive order asking us um, to put together us along with our colleagues um, at HHS to put out um, a report which we're all working on and um, and so there's not a whole lot more for me to say at the moment. <laughs> okay, fair enough. I just you know. Yeah, you must ask. ask. <laughs> I must ask. Um, you mentioned coverage gaps around Medicaid expansion. Another population that 
we know has coverage challenges is those approaching Medicare age, uh, particularly if they've lost uh, employer coverage. We, of course, have the marketplace option, but it has its limitations. Um, we used to hear a lot about changing Medicare eligibility age, uh, making the program available to more people. What can you tell us about thoughts on that policy? Well, I would say the president outlined many solutions, um, including lowering the age. I would say um, what the thing, the the real, not the real focus, but one of the things that I think is so important is that we come up with a solution that fills all the gaps. And so that's been um, why, one of the reasons why I think the coverage gap has so much attention, because um, we really do have people in the country who don't have cover health insurance coverage, health coverage, and so that's been um, that's been an area of real concerted attention by by everyone. But certainly, there are many ideas uh, that uh, we can continue to consider, like the collective us, um, and of course, the Medicare program is one that. Um, is turned 56 just a few uh, weeks ago um, and support um, so many people has changed the lives um, and lengthened the lives of um, millions of Americans. And uh, it's important that we continue to strengthen the program. And that's something we're very focused on. Uh, Solvency is a central issue to that. And uh, the economic downturn has uh, you know, we're pulling obviously out in certain ways, but uh, not completely. Uh, what is what? How much attention are you paying to uh, solvency in the reports and the need to come up with policy options in case of the window uh, getting too short? Certainly, is high on the list of a long list of priorities, but it is very much something that we are all very focused on. And you know, later this month. We will, um, you know, the trustees will present and uh, we'll all continue to continue the conversation. We're always focused on making sure that our policies are balanced with all of these priorities we talked about. Also keeping an eye on the taxpayer dollar um, as part of that, um, you know, program integrity, which is something I spend, we spend a lot of time on, even though we don't talk about it quite a, you know, a lot, but that's certainly an area of focus, as well as our policies and making sure that we are um, being good stewards of the uh, trust fund. Now, we're a research and policy journal, so I'm very interested in information data. Mm -hmm. uh, you mentioned earlier the importance, and it's in the blog, the importance of a little more transparency around the data used to evaluate CMMI initiatives. Uh, we're well, why don't I just start there? Do you have a sense of uh, what new information people might have, particularly those in the policy analysis community, uh, to help make sense of what the uh, performance of the various programs are? Are there specific initiatives? Again, I know it's early, but are there specific initiatives around increasing uh, data transparency that, that we should be aware of? We are very focused on this. Um, uh, the data team is 
um, one of the joys of coming in is meeting um, and hearing all the capabilities that have developed while um, since my last time in CMS and the data team um, is phenomenal and very focused on um, twofold, continuing to increase our, our um, data capabilities, but also very focused on making data more available to stakeholders to do their own research. And so, yes, this is an area where um, we are uh, very engaged in a conversation about how do we make data across across CMS, um, across a whole host of um, issues, uh, more available to researchers. Uh, skimming the questions coming in, uh, it's hard to multitask here, but a lot of them within the second or third word is the word telehealth. Uh -huh. Again, a topic that, you know, our views and our understanding of its potential changed dramatically under COVID. But we've also published research that, you know, demonstrates that it's not a solution for everyone. And mm -hmm. if you're focused on equity, you, you need to be cautious about uh, excessive reliance on telehealth. Um, that said, there are a lot of both patients and providers who are quite happy with it and some who aren't so happy. Uh, where do you see that going? We we just had such a shift in our thinking and people don't want to go back. So what's the way forward? You know, it's always a balance. And um, uh, of, I've heard so much about telehealth. It's probably um, the topic that comes up the most, I think, uh, in our conversations of people having um, such incredible uh incredible experiences. I think the one that is um, a no-brainer uh, in terms of its value and importance has been mental health and what a difference that has meant to people, even in surprising ways. I've certainly heard from, um, from, uh, from members about how they're in their communities, people have talked about even it taking away the stigma in smaller communities of um, of needing to see a provider, how no-shows um, for bigger facilities have dropped uh, because of telehealth. But you really raise, Alan, a, um, the flip side of that, which is, um, does it exacerbate uh, inequities? I also hear a lot about um, broadband not being available in certain areas. And, um, and, and so with everything, we have to continue to to figure out and strike the balance. We also do have to focus on program integrity and make sure that people actually get the services. And so, um, you know, we CMS have some authority in terms of telehealth and Congress will of course um, have to make some decisions, but that's the balance that we are, are really trying to look at of knowing that in some situations, um, it's clear what a difference it's making. Um, but we need to have those same safeguards of making sure people are getting the services and the care that they need and that we aren't, things aren't falling through the cracks. Um, and this is a perfect example, right, of when you talk about a policy, you really have to make sure that equity is a part of the conversation. Because if you make a decision on a policy like this and you don't consider health equity, you might end up in a different place. So maybe we need to tweak the policy. Maybe we need to add certain safeguards. Maybe we need to put certain limitations. Maybe we make it broader. Maybe we think about 
um, audio only in a different way because we realize that in some communities they don't have broadband. This is this is how we are trying to think differently. Well, that's really helpful. And as we come down to our last uh, few minutes, I, I do want to keep the focus on equity. That's where you started us. Uh, one population, you know, we talk about Medicare, we talk about Medicaid, but there are people who are on both and they are the frailest, the uh, low income, primarily elders, but not entirely, mm -hmm. uh, with some of them very complex needs, some of them just uh, very deep needs. Um, What's the, you know, uh, when I, I've been working in state health policy for decades and dual eligibles and how to improve coordination between them has been a topic for as long as I can remember. Where do you see policy for that most vulnerable group uh, heading? Again, we have so many priorities. That one is certainly on the list. We were talking about that this morning um, of how do we integrate care? for dual eligibles. They're the most expensive part of both programs, right? Both the Medicare program and the Medicaid program. Um, and how do we think of ways where we can better align? I think that this is a perennial issue in part because, because of the silo, you have um, uh, different incentives, right? Like the Medicaid program's incentives and the Medicare program incentives are not the same. And so sometimes uh, that causes uh, challenges. But on the other hand, we have more participation in multiple programs than we probably did 10 years ago. So um, there is more overlap in terms of the providers and the health plans that participate in the Medicaid and Medicare programs. And are there new opportunities? Can we take a different approach now that we have more participation? Um, and so uh, coordination is a very important part and focus uh, of our work and how can we encourage health plans to coordinate that care better? How do we require uh, health plans to coordinate that care better? I think the um, health savings program, so, uh, sorry, the. Medicare savings programs, so making sure that cost sharing is paid for, such a critical um, way to make sure that coverage is more affordable to people who um, are dual eligibles or right above that level um, in terms of income. And we've been looking at our numbers. Many people are enrolled in the Part D subsidies, but not enrolled in these programs. And so making sure that um, people get enrolled is, is uh, also a focus because as we know, cost sharing makes a huge difference in terms of um, people's access to care. But I think, again, this isn't, it's not an easy, you know, we're going to solve it overnight. But I think there's tremendous opportunity here. There's so, I mean, the, the participation um, of the dual SNPs, the special needs plans, is really high. Again, like being away and coming in and hearing these new numbers, there's a lot of interest in managing this population because their costs are so high, there's probably um, a lot to do. We need to make sure it's working for people's care. And um, and, and so again, a, a, an area of focus. Uh, which leads back to the other opening uh, topic of patient uh, centeredness. You talked some about bringing that perspective into CMS. 
What about expectations for that perspective? And we talked about it with respect to comments on 1115 waiver applications. What about that, an expectation with respect to patients in the health sector itself? There are lots of health serving institutions that still seem to have sort of a tin ear when it comes to actual patient experience. What can we do to embed this into the health system writ large, not just into the operations of CMS? Well, one of the um, last pieces of our vision um, is really making sure that CMS is best in class and serving as a model, that our programs are serving as a model. And we, um, the three M's are incredibly important to the healthcare sector. And I hope that as we continue to raise the bar of what we expect out of the healthcare system for the people who are served by our programs, that it will encourage um, other the commercial market to make similar um, uh, recommendations. And I know many of the commercial market is very aligned. Much of it is, much of the commercial market is aligned. But if we're not swimming in the same direction, we don't move in the same direction, you know, for all doing different things. So our goals are to, um, to, help, to help set a standard that people respect enough to want to and participate in so that um, we're all going to swim in the same same direction. When I introduced you, you said that this was a dream job for you, which mm-hmm. is understandable. Uh, you've had a, a, a varied path to this point. I doubt you had a clear roadmap for how to become CMS administrator. But I bet you there are some people early in their policy careers who are watching this thinking, I'd like to be in that chair someday. What advice would you give them? So you are right. I um, never expected to be in this chair. I would say that see every, um, every job, every topic as an opportunity to learn. When I started at OMB, I worked on such disparate issues. Um, and sometimes those issues come back, even in this role. I remember things from, um, and use terms that we used 20 years ago. I worked on XYZ issue, and then it connects to an issue that someone brings to me now. You never know where you'll end up. Um, and to seize the moment, uh, and then lastly, probably to become an expert in what you do, be excellent in what you do. And that's when the opportunities come. That's such a great answer. And I think the weaving of knowledge across different parts of your experience is essential. The only thing is the names change. I was thinking how we, you know, we have long-term <laughs> services and supports and uh, social determinants of health and ACOs, and you have to yep. keep a, a, a dictionary <laughs> next to you and a list of acronyms and um, but it is striking how many new ideas are actually old ideas. They've yes. just come back under a somewhat different name. So and uh, having being a little bit of a historian isn't bad in this uh, in this business. Okay. Well, as we come to a close, before I thank you, I just want to say to our audience, uh, we hope you enjoyed the event and keep an eye out for an announcement uh, for our October briefing on our thematic issue on perinatal mental health. Uh, we'll also launch a new series of policy policy spotlights in the fall. 
we haven't uh, built those yet, and uh, we're also looking for sponsors. So if you're watching and you would like to be a sponsor, that would be terrific. Please sign up for more announcements on healthaffairs.org and complete our survey. But as we come to a close, uh, Chiquita, it's been a pleasure uh, talking to you and getting your insights. And as I said at the outside, outset, uh, you know, our paths have crossed over the years, and um, it's really nice to see how the variety of experiences you've had have led you to this point. And it comes through loud and clear in your answers to the questions that you're drawing in, experiences you've had from various places. So uh, thank you so much for being uh, with us on our Policy Spotlight series. And more than anything, I wish you the best of luck in a very difficult but very important job. I don't need to tell you that, but it's uh, we, we all wish you the best because uh, so many people's health really does ride on the decisions you make and we want you to succeed. So um, know that there are many of us out there, uh, whether people agree or disagree with every single decision, they, they, they want you to succeed. And I, think, I know I speak for many. So thanks again for being with us and all the best to you in your uh, really important work. Thank you so much. It was a pleasure to be here. Thank you for having me. Have a good rest of your day. Thanks for listening. If you enjoyed today's episode, I hope you'll tell a friend about a health policy. Health Policy is produced by Health Affairs, the leading journal for health policy research. The team behind the show includes Patty Sweet, Jeff Byers, Julia Vivolo, Sarah Kolk, and Sue Ducat. Like the show? Subscribe to A Health Policy on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, Google, or wherever you listen to your favorite podcasts. Thanks for listening, and have a great morning, day, or evening.